Your favorite PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors are right here every week on Next on the Tee. Join Chris as the greats of the game share their stories, insights and playing lessons. Now, back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now joining us here on the French Lick Resort guest line is former PGA Tour pro Richard Zirkel. Let me give you some more background on Richard's. He's from Kitimat, British Columbia, which is on the coast up there in the central part of the province. Played his college golf at Brigham Young from 1977 to 1981, where he helped them to a first or second place finish in the WAC Conference all four years that he was there. They finished second in the national championship in 1980. Came back the next season in 81, and he captained them to the national championship, along with his teammates Rick Fair, Keith Clearwater, and David DeSantis. Bobby Clampett was also a teammate and Richard's roommate for three years. 2009, that 81 golf team was inducted into the Brigham Young Athletics Hall of Fame. 81 was a good year to Richard because not only was he a part of the national championship, he won the 81 Canadian Amateur Championship as well by one stroke over Blaine McAllister in a sudden death playoff, and he turned pro that year as well. That The year before, in 1980, Richard won the International Championships Tournament over in Morocco, among his other wins was the 82 British Columbia Open and the 84 Utah State Open. On the PGA Tour, he won twice in the 1992 Deposit Guarantee Classic and later that year in the Greater Milwaukee Open. 2001, he was the he won the Canadian PGA Championship up on the Web.com Tour. And in 2011, he was inducted into the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. He is now the founder of MindLink Golf, which you can find online at MindLinkGolf.com. And we're excited to have him with us tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Richard, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome back. Hey, thanks, Chris. Boy, that was a, 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 you've done your homework very nicely. I appreciate that. And uh, do, thank you very much for such a lovely introduction. And uh, nice to talk with you and Bob as well. Richard, I want to start by going back to your time at BYU. Right, you came yep. into a powerhouse golf program there. They won the WAC conference just about every year since '67. At that point, and you're stepping right into a program, obviously with high expectations. Talk about your decision to go there. Well, first of all, my decision was I wanted to go there because I was following another Canadian there with great success, a guy by the name of Jim Nelford, who I didn't know at the time. I just wanted to be like Jim. And uh, so I wrote the coach, and he declined me. And uh, so uh, later that summer, this was the summer after high school, I got paired with Nelford, and he had just finished winning the Western Amateur and the Canadian Amateur a couple times. He's about to turn pro, finished four All-American years at BYU, and I got paired with him. And he called the coach in the summertime, and Coach Tucker, and said, you know what, this Oakle guy has got some, he's got some moxie, he's got some talent. So the coach uh, allowed me to walk on. He didn't have any grant and aid. And he says, I tell you what, I said, he said, I'll put you in the dorm room with Bobby Clampett. And uh, at the time, I didn't know who Bobby was. And I said, man, you can put me in with Jethro or Ellie Mae. I'm fine with that. <laughs> and so I was in the dorm room with Bobby Clampett our freshman year and got to know him. And it was, it was just unbelievable watching how good this guy was. And by the way, down the hall from Clampett and I, was Danny Ainge, and further down the hall was Jim McMahon, our our freshman wow. year at BYU. So, wow. um, you know, and so as a walk-on, uh, lived with Clampett and uh, for three years, and then Bobby turned pro his our senior year, joined the PGA Tour. I was the captain of the team and uh, won the NCAA at Stanford in 1981. So 
It's a lovely Cinderella story. It's one I talk about quite often for young aspiring players to go from walk-on to captain of the NCAA championship. It was a, it was a highlight of my career. So as you mentioned, you know, being there with Bobby and teaming with him, and again, you had Rick Fair, Keith Clearwater, guys that you not yeah. only played at BYU with, but then you guys played together out on tour for a long time. Talk about you know playing alongside those guys for so much of your golfing life. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, on our team, we, uh, you know, clamp it, uh, myself. I only started to play well towards my junior and senior year. Rick Ferrer was a great player right out of his, uh, in our fresh, his freshman year. Keith Clearwater was probably the best player on our team. You know, we went into that, uh, we thought, everyone thought that, you know, when Clampett left, there went our, our team, but we went through that year. We started the year ranked number one. We never lost our ranking. Uh, number one, and then won the NCAA, and then the WAC championship. We played at uh, Sand at Torrey Pines, uh, the Western Athletic Conference. We won by 50 shots, <laughs> so it was it was quite um, a feat. Or it was just fond memories of playing with such guy with guys that had such great talent, such great ability, and great people. And then we carried it on to the PGA Tour. Clampett was there. I was there, Clearwater, Rick Ferrer, and, uh, and, uh, we, uh, we did BYU proud on the PGA Tour for, uh, a decade or so. Bob, questions for Richard? Hey, Rich, it's great to talk to you. I wanted to get more about your Canadian background and what it's like, uh, growing up and playing golf in Canada. Did you lose a lot of, uh, golf time to weather back in the day, Richard? Take us back and, uh, how you went about that. Well, I was, uh, I, I grew up in a city in Vancouver where, uh, I think, you know, we can play golf. It's like Seattle, a lot of rain and you mm-hmm. can play golf all year round. I think, Bob, you're in the Northeast in Connecticut somewhere. Is that it? Yes, I am. Yeah. So I think your winters are going to be a lot harsher than mine. So you could play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, the, what I really liked about going to BYU, I mean, and I'm not even a Mormon, um, and I wanted to go there because their program was so good. Um, um, was the fact that you were in winter weather most of the year, so you had to learn to gear up. I always thought that if you're in, uh, you know, Texas, Florida, California, you know, there's no respite. And uh, I played other sports in the wintertime. I was a soccer player in Canada, not a hockey player. And uh, so, you know, so it was a good uh, balance. And I'm a strong believer in having a good balance until, until you're ready to go to the most serious level. And, uh, Richard, tell me about your first uh, appearance in a major. I believe it was 85 at the U.S. Open. Uh, must be an incredible experience. Uh, bring us back then to the nerves, the everything. About yeah. Yeah. Well, let me just start my rookie year because I think there's some, there's a piece there a lot of older people may understand. My rookie year on the PGA Tour was 1982. And, and uh, you know, we talk about the nerves. I, ta- I call it anxiety. Uh, and, and it's based on thought that trigger the, the anxious nerves. And, and I had a problem for the first six months on tour. I couldn't make a cut. Literally, I could not make a cut. I was uh, playing well, but, you know, the anxiety was getting to me. And then in, in July, that summer, at uh, the Greater Milwaukee Open, as a matter of fact, I donned on, uh, in the first round of the tournament, a Walkman. And, uh, and I just did it. I never practiced with it and I listened to music. When I walked off the first team, I remember playing with Larry Rinker and Ronnie Black, uh, Tuckaway Country Club and I slapped on these headphones and I listened to rock and roll and I was shoot, you know, I shot, I was coming down the 18th hole 
uh, for my final round, minus seven. I'm leading the golf tournament, and all the buzz and photographers were were there, you know, because this is quite a, a, a radical move. And uh, and um, so after I finish, I sign for the 65. I'm leading the tournament, and they haul me off. The PGA Tour officials say, "What are you listening to?" And I said, "Well, I'm listening to rock and roll." Uh, they had to call PGA Boatwright at the USGA to find out if this was legal. And I'm going, "Oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to get disqualified here." And they they come back and they say, "No, you can do that." So I got labeled this title on uh, as Disco Dick, and it was on the front cover of all the. Uh, the sports pages for uh, for golf and uh, and I did it for a year out there and it really helped me get through that psychological barrier and that gap to gain comfort in in high pressure situations. So from that point on, I was devoted to trying to figure out how the mind worked in relation to playing golf. So, Richard, let's fast forward to 92 when, when you win the Deposit Guarantee Classic in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Was was that the turning point in your career for you, giving you the confidence that you could compete and win at the PGA Tour level? Yes, uh, yes, it was. It was a very important turning point. I remember earlier in the year I was at AT&T and I was very frustrated and uh, that uh, I figured that I was on the, t- on the tour for 10 years and I really hadn't made any progress in my mind and uh i was you know struggling with my golf swing and and i saw johnny miller hitting balls on the other end of the range and i went over to him and watched him and he was hitting these golf balls with one hand now i don't know if you know that johnny's a left-handed dominant he's left-handed it hits right-handed and he's hitting these five irons hitting cuts and draws and these beautiful shots with just one hand his right hand's in his pocket and he's and I'm looking at the structure in his swing with this left-handed dominant swing. I'm going, wow, that's perfect. So from that point on, I went back to my pile over on the other side of the driving range of my pile of balls to hit them. And I started to find, figure out, you know, I wanted to get my left-hand dominant because my right-hand domination, uh, like most golfers, was causing me to come over the top and break my sequence a lot. And from that point on, I developed this skill my uh, ball striking ability started to just uh, improve at a drastic rate. And then in the springtime, I won the Deposit Guarantee Classic. That was opposite the Masters. And then later on that year, as I was gearing up for the Canadian Open, I won uh, I won the Greater Milwaukee Open, too. So two victories in one year was my best year. And um, it was a, a tremendous learning experience. Yeah, so, you know, as we ta- start to talk about the mental approach to the game, Richard, you know, when you when you were winning the Greater Milwaukee Open, and as you mentioned, the the Guarantee Classic was sort of opposite the Masters, so the field wasn't quite as strong as as a regular right. tour event. But you come down, and now you're gonna you're, you're you're leading the Greater Milwaukee Open, right? You you're, you shoot 19 under par for the tournament, including a 67 in the final round, and you end up beating Dick Mass by a couple of strokes. But what was it like for you? What were the nerves like coming down mm-hmm. the stretch, trying to win your first official PGA Tour event? Well, it was actually it, uh, Mark Brooks was the guy who was not only the defending champion in, of the Greater Milwaukee Open in '92, he was also the 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 leader of uh, going into the final round. So Brooks and I were uh, um, in the final group, and uh, and all the way to the the in the last hole, Mark was one shot. Uh, I had a one shot lead on him, and, and Brooks happened to make a big number on the last hole. That's why uh, Dick Mast was the, finished second. But it was um, it was a barrier that I, I uh, you know I've had the lead before. I remember the first time I had the lead in 
in, I think it was King's Mill in 1986 after 54 holes, and I shot 79 in the final round. I, I, it was very difficult and very uncomfortable to be in that position, and uh, and I had gone through so a lot of trials and tribulations that a lot of people need to do to learn how to handle that pressure. And then, but uh, I was absolutely convinced. I knew that Mark, uh, you know, he had the lead going into the final round. I'm playing with him. He was the defending champion. All expectations were on him. But the way I was playing, I shot 64 the day before, and I had a determination in my mind, and I knew that I was going to win that tournament before we teed off. Uh, as long as I had to keep my, my, my stuff wired tight, so to speak, my thoughts, and uh, and I got on a roll and, and got off to a good start and uh, proceeded to have a two-shot advantage with two holes to go. I, I, I three-putted the 17th hole, but uh, then topped it off with a, a strong par in the last hole when, when un, unfortunately, Mark made a big number and uh, got that great victory. It's a, it's a tremendous feeling to break through, and it's a, it, what it does is it really gives you a deep sense of gratification that all the sacrificing of all the years was really worth it. And, and it also taught me what a what you know how how psychological this game really is for every golfer bob more for richard yeah richard and uh, again uh i just wanted to talk about the uh the, the muscle <laughs> shall we say the muscle on the tour these days i mean you weren't considered a big man uh back right. then these guys some of them are still not that large in stature richard but they're obviously these guys are stronger like any other sport with uh, training regimens and uh, nutrition and everything. I was just wondering, back in your day, did you do a lot of uh, working out? Uh, did you do as much as you could to get stronger and hit the ball farther? Well, um, I'm still a believer today that what makes the golf ball uh, move out, even with uh, Dustin Johnson, you know, with our modern players, is not so much, it's not muscle, it's flexibility and technique. And, uh, but I did, I, I did work out at the time. It was, you know, running and, and cardiovascular. But, uh, during my era, you, you know, we thought you should stay away from weights. I tried weights and they would tighten my muscles up and make it difficult to swing, but I didn't break through that barrier. But, uh, um, you know, gosh, I remember playing with Jack Nicholas in the final round of the 84 PGA championship at Shoal Creek. And, uh, you know, Jack was long playing with Greg Norman. Uh, you know, they were hitting it, you know, 40, 50 by me. I was right on that average mark uh, of an average tour player, which was pretty good distance for a guy my size at, you know, five, five, nine and, uh, you know, a buck 50. Uh, but it's, uh, it's fascinating to watch these guys move. And I think with today's technology combination of the lightweight, the technology on the club head and the ball, that ball is going a long ways. And Richard, uh, you finished tied for 14th in the 93, uh, the, uh, that was the, what was it? Yeah, it was PGA. PGA. And, yeah, and that was the Paul Azinger. Paul Azinger, I yeah. believe, because he's a, he's a Hartford favorite up this way, and I remember them referring to that, and, uh, he won that in a playoff, but, uh, tying for 14th, maybe on the surface, looks not too good for a lot of guys, but I'm sure that must have been one of your prouder moments as a pro in a major. You're, you're right. Uh, very perceptive it was. And, and particularly, you know, I'd played in, in, uh, the Masters, 
the year before, and I wanted to get back to uh, from my win in Milwaukee. Got in the Masters in in '93, and I wanted to get you know that second chance at, at Augusta. And uh, that tournament, unfortunately, I missed the, the invitation to the Masters by a shot, and I was trying to grind it out so I could get back there. And uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I recall a fond memories. I love Inverness where we played and uh, played the last couple of rounds with Hale Irwin. And quite frankly, when you're going head to head with Hale Irwin and, and uh, staying kind of in relative, you know, contention and playing the type of golf that you have to do, and uh, when you get a guy who acknowledges your good play like Hale Irwin did to me, those are very meaningful moments for you know journeyman player tour players like myself. So it was, you're right, it was a, it was a, it was a great tournament for me. Richard, a couple more before we let you go, and 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 I read a blog post that you wrote a few years ago about the anchoring band and why that was important to protect the integrity of the game. And obviously that's come to pass. And as you mentioned, technology. Is technology becoming, you know, with, with what we're getting with golf equipment, whether it's the drivers, irons, golf balls, is all of that now risking the same integrity of the game due to the distance the golf ball is flying now? I, I personally think so. Uh, you know, it's a, there's a strong debate going on. The USGA made an announcement today that they're going to take on all this information to see if they're going to the, battle it. But I am in that old school camp with Jack Nicholas and Trevino and, and, and thinking that uh, the advancements in today's golfers is more to do with technology than it is, um, you know, fitness or skill. Um, you know, the art of driving the ball, other than this past week at the Players' Championship where accuracy was more important, you know, I thought it was wonderful, uh, and it allows a guy like Webb Simpson to compete. Um, but uh, day in, day out, um, technology is really taking, uh, um, taking, you know, filling the gap from what I think used to be talent and uh and uh happy to deb- debate that all day long with those that 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 uh, argue against it and uh, nothing like a good healthy debate but uh yeah i think it's gone a little long and uh and and i'd like to see a pullback on it so we can get uh, the skill back in the game and richard you founded a new company mindlink golf talk about what uh what you guys are working on well, uh, MindLink Golf is a mental game improvement method app and platform. It's a it's a method that I created in the last few years of the PGA Tour where I was playing that I had to use in order to break free to get that freedom of anxiety. Um, everybody, you know, golf is a, a psychosomatic game, and in uh, performance uh, for even the best players in the world is very thought and emotional fragile. And you know the, how the golfer's mind is. Well, it's broadly misused and and universally uh, misunderstood. And and so what you have to do is learn to detach emotionally from the results. And what our our innovative uh, app and platform does is it captures data that's key performance markers of every single golf shot. And those there's two key performance markers. And in order to be successful, or you have to assess that shot correctly, and that could be, you know, your lie, the wind, choosing your club, how you're going to hit that shot, uh, and then you have to execute. So we collect that data, and it creates a baseline standard for every single club, and then it also determines how many shot-lost events you have during each round, 
compare to your baseline standards. So this innovation, it's not data capture like, you know, fairways hit or greens and regulation or putt per round. This is called key performance markers, and, and it's the information that each golfer uh, uses on the, against their own norm. And uh, when you put your attention on these key performance markers, then you will be able to improve them, and then you'll be able to take care of uh, all those pressure situations and perform to your very best. So, Richard, let our listeners know, how can they you know, stay up to date with the things that you're doing, follow you, whether it's online or over social media, and then you know, when you'll be launching MindLink Golf officially? Well, thank you very much, Chris. Um, what we're going to be doing, we're writing, we're, we're just writing the wireframe of the app right now. We anticipate uh, the starting of the building of the app. Uh, we've got an engagement with a Bay Area software developer, and that's going to take a two and a, to a three month period. You can go to mindlinkgolf.com, our, our website, and they have rub of the mind podcasts on there. We taught, there's about 25 of them you can listen to. And we use situations of success and failure on the PGA Tour to understand how important the mind is. And uh, I think everyone, there's some good things on there that I talk about uh, that are current. And, um, and uh, you know, we, we plan on, we may have a name change in the future. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, it'll be towards the end of the summer before we commercially launch. Well, Richard, uh, first of all, thank you for taking time out of your night to, to come and be a part of the show. And uh, when you guys are ready to launch, I hope you'll come back and, Share more of your stories and insights with us, and then uh, let us know how things are going so that uh, our listeners can get involved and download the app and uh, start using it because it sounds fantastic. Well, I, I appreciate that, Chris. Thank you for the invitation. Bob, nice meeting you guys, and uh, you. glad to be part of your show. Well, we appreciate so it, Richard. Take care. All the best to you and your family. We look forward to hopefully getting the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. See you, Richard. That's Richard Zokol. And again, it's MindLink Golf, and uh, the website is active, MindLinkGolf.com, and he does have several podcasts on there around the around the mental side of the game. So go online to check it out. Uh, fantastic stuff, Bob. It's uh, you know when you look at a guy's career that Richard had, and being a national champion, and then uh, you know getting some wins out on the on the PGA Tour, it's it's very impressive, and uh, I'm sure the MindLink Golf is going to be equally so. As you said, Chris, a guy that's had success uh, at college and on various tours. He's won on various tours. And, uh, again, a member of the Canadian Hall of Fame, Chris. So that's pretty impressive, too. we got guys like Mike Weir, Stephen Ames, uh, that you might be familiar with, also in that Hall of Fame. But uh, great guy and uh, very generous with his time. Yeah, looking forward to catching up with Richard a little bit later on this summer, hopefully.